everybody. Welcome to Happy Healthy You, the podcast. I'm Connie Bowman, and my guest today is Max Strom. He is a teacher, he's a speaker, he's an author, and he's written a book called There Is No App for Happiness, How to Avoid a Near-Life Experience. Max knows what we're all feeling. We're starving for intimacy. From email and social media to smartphones and wireless hotspots, technology has taken over nearly every aspect of our lives, and it's really changing how we relate to each other. It's happening so fast that we haven't developed healthy ways to cope. And as a result, we've become depressed, anxious, sleep-deprived, and over-medicated. We've been quietly accepting the exchange of an actual life for a virtual one, says Max. Physical pain and emotional depression are the unfortunate side effects of having such a technology-heavy lifestyle. But Max is here to fix all that. Welcome, Max Strom. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Connie. I'm very happy to be here with you. Well, your book is right in line with what I'm doing on the on Happy Healthy You. Um, you really talk about how to be happy in this crazy technological world. And why don't we just go into uh, what you what you talk about in the beginning of the book about why we are so prone to being unhappy in this time? Yes, uh, it's a funny time that we live in where. Uh, there's a lot of talk about happiness th these days, and it's because I think so many people are not happy and can't figure out why. A lot of us have the attitude that everything in my life is perfect, except I'm not happy. I wonder why that is. Yeah. <laughs> but it's because uh, we don't really take actions, quite honestly, to make ourselves happy. Right. Uh, we're, we're entertained to death, and we certainly have plenty of sources of pleasure in our society. But uh, as you know, pleasure and entertainment do not lead to happiness. In fact, entertainment can postpone happiness. Because mm -hmm. while you're distracted through entertainment, you know, watching a movie or playing video games or chatting on Facebook or something like that, you're not sitting with yourself. You're not exploring your feelings. You're not figuring out what changes need to be made in your life to enhance your life. Well, you say in your book that there are two trends that are going on right now. And one is that technology is exploding exponentially. And two, we are becoming less happy. So how do the two of those go together? Well, I, first of all, I want you to know, I, I have to make a disclaimer, I am, I'm not anti-technology just for your Right. Your and you say that. Yeah. Yeah. For instance, we're having this discussion on Skype. I, I think it's Skype is great. And, and thank you. Yeah, it is nice to be able to see each other's eyes. And that that's one of the symptoms, I think. Right. So go ahead. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And uh, I use a voice recognition software to help me write my books. So uh, I'm, I'm very pro technology when it's used well. But uh, one of the ways I think it's contributed to our unhappiness is that uh, because we now have uh, ways of using technology in our social lives, mm -hmm. that we haven't yet found our way on how to use it well. And, uh, and because it's advertised so heavily and it's new, you know, and it's sparkly, shiny type of things, we, uh, we are overusing it and not understanding why it doesn't make us feel better. I think that social media is the white sugar of our time. The more we have, the more we want, the worse we feel. I quote studies in my book uh, where it's now been proven that most people, once they get off of social media, feel worse, not better. 
Mm. And this is surprising and perhaps counterintuitive. But also, uh, one of the most important statistics that I've learned from uh, my studies in the last decade of my life is that human beings communicate 90% non-verbally. That's what we're wired to do. And it, so for having relationships through text, whether it's text messages or emails or Facebook entries, whatever, that's a 10% relationship. So no wonder we don't feel fulfilled because we don't get to see the face of the person we're communicating with. And we are wired to ascertain tremendous amounts of data through body language and facial cues. And in fact, when you think about it, we rely on uh, body language and facial cues so much for everything. For example, if you're a mother and deciding if you're going to let this person babysit your children, it doesn't matter what the person says. Of course, they're going to say they're wonderful and they love children. Right. You're going to judge by their body language and their face if you trust that person. Right. If someone asks you out on a date and you're thinking about it, you're going to look into the eyes of that person, facial cues, body language before you say yes. And you might say no based on a hunch or a nonverbal cue that you've gotten that says this person can't be trusted or this person has issues that I don't want to deal with. When we choose presidential candidates, and it's been proven now, there's been studies where uh, they take a few hundred people and show photographs, for example, of uh, representatives that are running for Congress and from a state that you don't live in. So you've never seen these two faces before. You have no exposure to them and you don't know their names. They just show the faces. And based on people's reaction to the faces, they can determine the winner 100% of the time. Hmm. So, so we really need each other's faces and eyes and eye contact to make judgments like trust, intimacy, respect, um, love. Do we feel safe with this person? Do, does this person love me? And you can't get that from text. So hmm. our overuse of text in our emotional world I think is a really big problem. I'm not saying you should never send a text message again. Tech, a text message is fantastic for, there's a big traffic jam stuck, stuck in traffic, running late, sorry. That's a really good use of text message. But to have an, an, an emotional conversation is a tremendous mistake. Okay. So there, there, one day I was on the phone with one of my really good friends and she said, gee, what form of communication should we choose today? Should we text? Should we talk on the phone? Should we? I mean, it's almost gotten ridiculous that... And then you talk about Facebook friends, how we have so many Facebook friends, and how many real friends do we have? So that's an important consideration, I think. <laughs> yes. I, as I mentioned in my book, we spend a lot of time, uh, human beings spend a lot of time thinking about who they'd like to go to bed with. But I think that we should spend more time thinking about who we would get out of bed for. I love that. There's a phone call at three in the morning uh, from, from someone saying, I need your help. How many people in your life would you get out of bed for and who would get out of bed for you? Yeah, that's huge. So what is happiness? How do we define happiness? I mean, in, can we define happiness? <laughs> well, in any subject that's uh, rich in emotion, such as happiness, before we can even really talk about it, we have to define it. Uh, otherwise, we're, we're we're groping in the dark, and I believe from my uh, from from dealing with thousands, excuse me, at this point, nearly a hundred thousand students mm. over a period of time, 
in many different cities in many different countries and giving lectures on the subject of happiness and on ethics, etc., and asking questions, I'm convinced that most people don't know what happiness is for themselves. In other words, they haven't really sat down and defined it. I can sit down next to a man and say, what's your favorite sports team? And he says, you know, X football team. Right. Tell me about it. And like an encyclopedia, like, like Wikipedia, <laughs> he can go on for hours about all the details of the lives and injuries and statistics of the sports team. But then if I ask the same person, how do you define happiness? He suddenly becomes inarticulate. I get a lot of ums and well, and I think, and it's as if he hasn't thought about it for 10 years or more. And in fact, that could be the case. Mm. I think, I think it surprises some people when I say you need to define happiness because there are a lot of assumptions made in our society that, well, happiness is a result of success because when you become successful, you get money and money is, will buy you happiness. That's basically what the unspoken message is in our society. But I think that we need to, um, each of us needs to sit down, do a little self-study and say, what is happiness? Is it pleasure? Is it fun? Uh, is there more than that? For example, why do people do things that are unpleasant, uh, such as a nurse in, uh, in the intensive care ward or working in a hospice or working in a war environment or working with uh, people with extreme disabilities where it's pretty rough work. People do those types of, uh, people do work in that those uh, circumstances because it brings them meaning. And ultimately, when we have a meaningful life, then we say we're really happy, even if the circumstances are unpleasant. Mm. So I think that each one of us needs to, to see, yes, I, yes, of course, I want pleasure in my life. I want a nice place to live. I want, I want good sheets on my bed. I want <laughs> good, fresh food, etc. But I also need meaning in my life or it is all for nothing. So we really need to sit down and, and examine what makes us happy or or I interviewed Gloria Steinem and she said I said what makes you happy because there's a life with meaning I mean I feel like she's she's kind of found her niche as far as meaning goes and she said you know it's really nothing that happens out of any anything that I do or anywhere that I go it's just it happens spontaneously and for no reason and I'll say to myself wow I'm really happy. And I thought that was a great answer from from a really um, heady woman, you know, she spends a lot of time intellectualizing about things. And I thought that was, and it's really true. I mean, sometimes I can be walking down the street and, well, I have a real sense of well-being and happiness. And But I think that comes from building the life that you describe in your book through a lot of the things that we should be doing. And you talk about moving from the information age where we are to the age of wisdom. What is that all about? Well, I was, I was thinking a lot about just the term, the information age, and how, how much information is available to us. I mean, essentially, through our laptop or our handheld device, we have access to almost all the world's knowledge at this point. Hmm. I mean, we too really much. do. <laughs> it's almost too much, right? <laughs> it, it is too much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're way beyond almost. We can't process, you know, a small percentage of the world's information. We have access to all of it. 
and we, we of course can't sort through all of it so we have to make some choices uh, information is great but what are we going to do with that information that requires wisdom and so we to our own life um, to the information age we have to decide what do I want to keep what do I want to reject because we can't take it all in so rather than just respond um, in a knee-jerk fashion like say it's, it's too overwhelming so I'm going to play video games and not think about it instead we decide what to keep what to, to reject for example I have a saying that any piece of technology that you bring into your life should save you time not fill up your time because we need time to have personal relationships with our beloveds, with our children, with our grandchildren. Uh, we need time to create things, not just be entertained or be occupied. Every hour that we're just entertained or occupied, we lose out of our life. We have a finite amount of hours. And, and that's one of the imperatives in my book is understanding that your lifespan and your time are exactly the same thing. So every hour we waste, we lose from our life. So we have to be very careful not to um, burn, or excuse me, kill time, as we, we like to use that term. Mm -hmm. Killing time, you're just essentially killing your life. So it's really taking control of the information that, or the technology that we have and really managing it in ways that are in our best interests. I call it lifespan management. Yeah, I love that. That makes so much sense. It's, I mean, yeah, and it really is, it kind of drives home the point that we only have a finite amount of time here on this planet, so we might as well take advantage of it. Um, okay, so the three imperatives. These are the ways that Max says we need to design our lives so that we can reach this state of happiness. So number one, be self-aware. Well, duh. <laughs> But like you said, you know, you, you have those questions in your books. And I, as I was reading it, um, you, you asked some really profound questions that we should ask of ourselves to really come to some understanding of what we're made of and what makes us happy. And some of them are very hard to answer. My husband couldn't answer half of them off, you know, without thinking about it for a while. So, That's right. so um, becoming self-aware is huge. Well, the, the that's the point. They're, they're what I call high-level questions. Mm -hmm. uh, anyone can create a high-level question. A high-level question requires you to think deeply and to come up with a high-level answer. A high-level question is a question that requires the person answering to explore oneself and come up with a high-level answer. So they're not yes or no questions. They're not questions that... Um, you can quickly answer. They require self-exploration. So the 10 questions that I ask in my book, uh, I've thought through very carefully, and, I, and these are questions that I've asked in seminars for years now. And people are quite astonished sometimes. One lady in particular, I'll never forget, um, she had a private consultation with, with me, and I told her that she needs to take this self-awareness exercise, and she was a little indignant. <laughs> she said, I consider myself a very self-aware person. I, and I said, and you are, quite honestly, I mean that you, uh, from the people that I meet, you are extremely self-aware. But all of us can be more self-aware than we are and need to continually strive to be the rest of our life because that is an ever-expanding project. So she agreed to do the, the 10 questions and she wrote me back and saying that she was quite astonished that 
she learned a lot about herself and her family that she didn't know from these questions and thanked me. So we're never finished. We are never finished. And the other thing you say is that if you take them one year, if you go back in five years, 10 years, they'll be totally different. So Yes. Yeah. So the second imperative, we've always uh, already talked about life, live as though um, your time is the same as your lifespan. Well, yeah, that's, that's huge. And then the third one is create a daily discipline or a daily regime. That's the hard work for me. And you say we need an hour. Break, yes. break that down for me and okay. make me do it. First of all, <laughs> So to make it a little easier, it could be a half hour in the morning and a half hour in the evening. Oh, that's doable. Thank <laughs> you. Okay. Well, first first of all, the, the first reaction people will have is, where will I find the time? But the average American watches TV four hours a day, plays video games, is on social media, etc. So if you start um, what I call bartering a little bit, you can find the time. You have to pay for it. In other words, mm-hmm. because we only have 24 hours in a day, if you don't have an hour to do a physical discipline, you have to pay for it. You have to barter it with something else. So whatever it's going to be, an hour of TV, hour of video games, etc. So there is time. Now, the body must be included in, in our health regime. And many people um, don't include it. And... Many people do include it, but they do it in such a way that it actually causes as much harm as good. For example, many people are very physically, aerobically fit because they get on a a life cycle or a treadmill every day. So their heart and lungs are in pretty good shape and, you know, they have some stamina, but they're watching TV while they do it. So they're actually disassociating from their body for an hour a day. They're also training themselves to disassociate from impulses and, and symptoms and their body talking to them. And then they're quite astonished later when their body's been trying to tell them they're sick for two years and they never heard the signals. It had to be a, an x-ray or something that told them. So disassociation with the body has to stop. So what I recommend people do is, is one hour a day of a practice like yoga or qigong, something that involves breathing as well as movement and association with the body rather than disassociation. This is what unifies body, mind, and emotions together. This is what makes us more graceful, more calm, as well as more fit. So into that hour, do we need to incorporate some meditation or some mindfulness exercise? Or is it, are you saying an hour of physical exercise? Well, first of all, the entire physical exercise should be mindful. Okay. So I don't see them as separate. I just Ooh. see one still and one is moving. Mm-hmm. But I think to answer your question more directly, it should include some sitting at the end in meditation or contemplation. Okay. And I mentioned in my book that it's not everyone's ready to sit down and empty their mind. And I don't suggest people do that right away because if they're very anxious or tend to, you know, prone to panic attacks, et cetera they'll just feel like they're in the naughty circle and being asked to sit in the dark for five minutes. So <laughs> we're, not, we're not all ready to do that. That can come later. Mm-hmm. So I, have, I give some other alternatives in the book. But it's also much easier to sit after moving That's your right. body in, in some way. You give a lot of really good ideas for body exercises and other things that we can do to enhance our lives, like yoga, qigong, um, creating an altar in your life, in your house, which I love. 
um, and just and breath work and stretching. I just love all the examples. One of my favorite things that you talk about is creating your own creed. I love this. And can I just do you mind if I just read yours? Please do. Okay. We are those who love God as God is without needing to impose a human personality or face upon it, him, her. We move through the world as an ally to humankind, aiming to be a harmonious power in a disharmonious world. Amidst an environment of gossip and negativity, we will offer inspiration and grace. In a noisy, hurried place, we will provide calm. In a fearful place, we will provide courage and inspiration. In a place of decay, we will help rebuild. And in all instances, with humility, we will influence or even lead by example. Following our inner voice, we attain a level of beingness that is apparent to those who have eyes to see. So like sitting in the presence of a calm stream in a forest, a person will want to stop and sit beside us and, feeling better because of it, will ruminate on improving his or her own life. OMG, that's awesome. <laughs> that is Thank so good. Thank you. I want that. <laughs> Can I use that for my creed too? I think that's beautiful. Yeah. The reason that religions use a creed and, and, it, and it is recited, it's, you know, it's all religions. And the reason military also uses a creed, uh, special forces in the United States of America, they have creeds. The reason they use them is because they work. It's a way of recalibrating ourselves every morning to get up and recite our creed. Now, it's important for your listeners to know that I do not impose a creed uh, in my book, and the creed that you read is my own, and I don't, I don't suggest that anyone adopt it unless, of course, they wish to. My the chapter is actually about creating your own, either using one that you already follow, but but say it every morning. For example, if you belong to a religion that has a creed that you adhere to, perhaps to consider saying it every morning. But if you don't, write your own. Write something that's extraordinarily meaningful to you that will remind you who you are and what you stand for and why you live and recite it every morning. It has a powerful effect. If it didn't, special forces in the United States military would not be using it. If somebody's interested in working with you or getting a copy of There's No App for Happiness, How to Avoid a Near-Life Experience, how would they find you? Well, I have a website. It's uh, maxstrom.com. And uh, that has, I think, all the information someone will need. Uh, I do have a Facebook page that's called Max Strom also, surprisingly. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I I don't use it to chat on. I use it to inform and present material for people to read and tell them where I'm going next. Because, as you know, I I travel to about 45 cities a year in about 10 countries, teaching seminars, workshops um, that deal in subjects like there is no app for happiness. There is no app for happiness. The book, to answer your question, is available now online at all the the usual suspects and uh, probably at your bookstore. And don't forget about your local bookstore because if you you still want it to be there, you have to buy things from it. Okay. They're they're, they're rapidly disappearing, aren't they? Yes. And that's a place where you can look someone in the eye and... That's and right. make human contact and hold a book in your hand. And it, it is right. sadly becoming a dying breed, but we can keep them alive. We can do it, people. All right, Max Strom. Well, there's so much more in your book that 
we didn't talk about, and I think it's I, I think it's a must read for anybody who wants to uh, expand and grow and continue to thrive in this crazy world that we live in. So thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. You, you asked great questions, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Someone wants to know when I will be in their area. Go to my website, look on my events page. My events are listed for one year in advance. Awesome. Thank you. I'm happier. You happier? I am. <laughs>